reading from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. And the story is The Rich Man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to, tip, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, I beg you then, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You know, this morning I'd gone out to the ravine to pray. When I came back, Sham said, Vijay called, and amongst other things, after checking whether there was anything I needed, he said, Mom, please tell him to dress casually. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you finally, all your life, you're teaching your children how to live. Eventually, your children start teaching you how to dress <laughs> even when you come to preach. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's a real pleasure for me to be here with you this morning. I've had the occasion, several occasions now over the last few years to do this, and uh, Sham and I have been worshiping the last couple of weeks as well, so uh, we're just grateful for this opportunity. Some of you who are from Rexdale know this, rest, most of you will not, that before I became a pastor at Rexdale, I used to work with uh, Atomic Energy of Canada. And the last three or four years of my ministry, of my service there, I was one of 12 people who was being trained in uh, advanced media communication. I worked in nuclear safety, which is a very high profile, sensitive area. And so uh, they were training several of us who were in management positions, especially on how to communicate to media on safety matters. Uh, the two guys who did our training were incredibly competent people and the training was extremely valuable. Uh, about halfway through the training program, uh, they asked me whether I'd be interested in doing this kind of training with them. And so uh, they invited me down to Dallas for about eight days where I worked with them in training some people. And so I got to know them a lot closer up then. Now, these guys were extremely um, competent in what they did and demanded very high fees and got it. And so it was a very high roller lifestyle, extremely indulgent um, and a lot of uh, sexual indulgence as well in the process. Um, after I joined Atomic Energy of Rexdale, and two years later, one of them, Max, I'll call him Max, who had a drinking problem also died of severe cirrhosis of the liver. So I was invited to his funeral. So it was conducted by a Unitarian minister who kind of uh, 
soothed the congregation with all kinds of placebos about nice sounding phrases, fooling absolutely no one because there were two ex-wives in the congregation uh, in, in the group as well. At the end of that, all of them went off to the nearby bar to get drunk. It's not exactly the kind of funeral service I'm used to. Here's a question. What if while they were all in this bar, Max would have suddenly come back from the dead and say to the people, guys, you better pay serious attention to your eternal destinies. What do you think they would do? Frightened out of their wits, just order a second round of drinks, scotch on the rocks and make it quick, please? Or would they run to this minister, get a hold of him and say, hey, you got it all wrong, call all the people back and change the message, warn us. Of course we don't know because these things don't happen. People don't come back from the dead to warn us. But the only one who knows Jesus actually tells us. This parable that we're going to look at today actually addresses that question but in a very tangential kind of way. And as I walk you through this parable, I want you to think of yourself as maybe watching a, a, a three-act play. But because you might miss some critical background information, cultural data, you kind of need somebody next to you while you're watching the play whispering these things. You know, like I remember one time Vijay persuaded me to watch The Lord of the Rings. Not having read the book, I didn't understand anything that was going on. And so periodically he had to stop and whisper stuff in my ear to kind of fill it out. So the sermon is going to kind of do that for you as you keep listening. So listen, listen as much as you can like Jesus' original audience might have been listening to this story. Remember what you've been learning, that these are stories that engage us, pull us in, and there are connections between those stories and ours. And you might be surprised where we end up. It may not be what it seems to be all about. So the curtain rises, and here's what we read in Acts 1. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The purple dye that was used to dye garments purple was extremely expensive dye. It came from a purple fish that was a, a species of mussel. And so, obviously, the garments that he wore, the outer garments that he wore, were calculated to show off his uh, wealth. The linen undergarments were made of Egyptian flax, and they were also extremely expensive. So this man clothed himself every day for an ostentatious display of the wealth that was his. It also says that he feasted sumptuously, suggesting that there perhaps was an inner circle of people that came to his home every day, so there was a further display of his wealth. And thirdly, it says that he did this every day. Now, now remember, this is Palestine, it was a Jewish community. If his servants had to serve him every day, and there probably were many of those, they never got to keep Sabbath. So important was his need to display his status and his wealth that he was willing to break one of God's foundational laws for that community. Now, on the other hand, at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Remember the parables you've looked at so far have always had two individuals in contrast, remember? At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. This man was covered with purple and linen. This poor guy was completely covered with just sores. Who desired to be fed with with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the, logs came, the dogs came and licked his sword. The, the, the word was laid would suggest to us that the guy was so sick that he couldn't even stand up. And it also carries the idea of being cast aside. Even the people who brought him to the gate of this wealthy man 
really saw him as a burden to be discarded at the feet of the one person in the village who might have been able to help him or not. The word desired would suggest that he wanted something but he couldn't get it. I mean, these were closely packed little communities. So if he couldn't see or hear, he could probably imagine what was happening inside this rich man's home, the, the, the feasting, the splendor, the abundance. And he could not even get the crumbs which were probably fed to the dogs that came there. You can just imagine the feeling of insignificance that this man would be struggling with. Yes, the physical suffering must have been acute, but far worse than that would be the feeling of in, in, insignificance to the point of invisibility. Probably every day these rich guests walked out, walked right by him and even stopped seeing him. Which, by the way, brings us to his name, Lazarus. This is the only parable of Jesus in which a, a, a character is named. I don't think it's because this is a real story of an actual beggar called Lazarus because nobody else is named in this story. You see, the word Lazarus means the one whom God helps. <laughs> what an ir irony, right? <laughs> this man had become invisible even to God. Help was so near, and yet it seemed inaccessible to this man. Before coming to North America, I grew up in India. And I saw beggars all the time. I saw beggars in my school, outside my school. I saw beggars in the temple when I would go there occasionally with my family. We saw beggars on the streets at every bus stop. Beggars all the time. And you know what? Growing up in that society, they became invisible. You just kind of used to the fact that there were beggars all around. But after living in North America for four years, when I went back in 1971, I noticed every single one of them. So here's my first question for you before we get any further into this parable. Who are the invisible people in your life that God wants you to start noticing? Someone right before your eyes. Someone that you're part, maybe in this church, maybe in your community. Worthwhile thinking about. I know when I reflected on this question, God brought somebody to my mind right away and I was able to follow up on that. It was worthwhile just thinking about. Well, let's get back the curtain comes down on Act 1 and rises on Act 2. Act 2 is extremely short. They die. They Both of them die. You can imagine the contrast in the funeral. The rich man's funeral, he was probably decked out again in purple <laughs> and linen. All his friends were probably there. Maybe saying all those vacuous, empty things about this guy that fooled nobody. Just like my friend Max's funeral. The poor man probably was dumped at the garbage dump outside where the bodies of criminals were often dumped, where there was an eternal fire that was, there was continual fire that was burning. Total contrast in the way they lived, total contrast in the way they died. And now we get to act three. The scene shifts from earth to heaven. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now the doctrine of the afterlife was something that actually develops very gradually in the scripture. There's very little of what happens after we die in the Old Testament. The Hebrew preoccupation was with this life. That's why the psalmists are always crying out for God to show up in this life to do justice. The concept of what happened afterwards was fairly hazy and people were thought to go into roughly the same area, Sheol in Hebrew, Hades in Greek, and was divided into two compartments. 
there was Abraham's bosom, which probably referred to the picture of a, of a metaphor for a, a U-shaped dining table or a reclining table, where Abraham the host, the father of their faith, sat side, and Abraham's bosom referred to the guest of honor who would be at his right, leaning into, much like John did with Jesus. And then there was Hades, that was a place of torment. Now, right away, you can tell that by choosing to set this parable in this picture of hell, uh, of this Hades, you, you can see right away that Jesus' primary purpose in the story wasn't really to talk a lot about the afterlife, because even the most orthodox conceptions of hell today don't see it as two compartments where people can see each other and talk with each other. His, his focus and his attention are elsewhere. Now, the man obviously recognizes Lazarus. What will he say? Will this be an opportunity for him to apologize for the way he was treated? Will there be repentance? Some remorse or regret at least? Well, let's see what happens. He says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Not a word to Lazarus. <laughs> he speaks instead to the power structure, Abraham. <laughs> And he says something like this. He said, hey, I'm not used to being in a place like this. And looks like Lazarus is doing pretty well right now. So can you please send him to help me? Can you imagine? His view of Lazarus hasn't changed one bit. Lazarus is still his servant. So come on God, Abraham, send this guy. He's healthy now. And I being who I am and he being who he is, I need him to come and help me. To make life a little bit more comfortable for me in this place. He could not imagine a society in which class distinctions didn't matter. And so he continue, demands continual service from the man who was a servant. The person to whom he wouldn't even give the crumbs from the table, he now expects to serve him. That's how he's still thinking. And notice the sheer arrogance of this. At the very least, seeing that Lazarus was Abraham's guest of honor, just to curry favor with Abraham, he might have said a few things to Lazarus, but it was beneath his dignity to speak to this man. Instead, he says, Abraham, you tell him to come and serve me. What do you think Lazarus would say? I mean, look, Lazarus is in a different position now, right? <laughs> He's in a good place. A man by the name of Kenneth Bailey, who lived for 60 years in the Middle East, wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he says this is something that Lazarus might have said. <laughs> he said, you dare to call me by name? You saw me outside the gate, but you did nothing to alleviate my pain? Where were you when I needed your help? Now you want me to serve you? I can't believe it. Father Abraham, leave this monstrous ego to fry in hell. He fed his dogs. I would, he, he would not feed me. What he now is suffering is only half of what he deserves. Something like that would have been perfectly justified coming out of Lazarus's mouth. The interesting thing is Lazarus says absolutely nothing. He's quiet. Abraham speaks instead. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross over from there and it should read to us. I'm sorry. Now, I thought reading this text, why would he even need to say nobody from here can pass over to you? Who would want to? <laughs> why would anybody want to leave the comforts of Abraham's bosom to go to this difficult, agonizing place? You know, did Lazarus actually offer to go? I don't know. <laughs> if so, he wasn't just only quiet when he could have said harsh things. He was still compassionate and willing to serve. We don't know. We can't read too much into the silence of Scripture. What is important, though, is the word remember. Because in, 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 in prophetic literature, the word remember is often a call to repent. Would the rich man hear it that way? Listen to what he says. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now we can't be sure, but most likely these five brothers belong to the same social stratus as him. They were probably among that inner circle that fed every day at that sumptuous meal with enjoying this display of wealth and ostentation. They're probably the ones who passed by Lazarus every day and he had become invisible to them. We don't know, but it's a reasonable presupposition. These were the people that mattered to this man. And so he says, okay, if Lazarus can't help me here, at least he can be an errand boy on earth. You see how his class structure is still completely intact. Even the flames hadn't changed his value system one bit. The people that mattered were still him and his brothers. The people who served were Lazarus. And if you can't serve me in hell, you can be an errand boy on earth to go and help them. That's the mindset out of which this man is speaking. Here's the first sobering insight that we get from this for today. That is, there is no repentance in hell. This popular picture of hell as a place there, all kinds of people are just wanting to go to heaven and serve God if only they'd be given a second chance. And they're being sifted on by this ruthless, angry, vindictive God is about as far removed from reality as you can imagine. In the book of Revelation, which for those of you who might not be familiar with the Bible, is the last book in the Bible which speaks about end times and even about judgment. Here's the reaction, a comment about a group of people. Don't worry about the details of, the, of the, the, the strange things that we don't have vocabulary to explain here, but notice two things in particular. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Notice this phrase, they did not repent and give him glory. The songs we've been singing have been ascribing glory to God. They did not repent and give him glory. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Do you notice that's the one thing that this man didn't ask? He didn't once ask Abraham, can you please allow me to come up there? Isn't that interesting? You would like to think that with the reality of his situation now, he would at least say, hey, God, I just blew, I blew it completely. I remember, yeah, I remember the way I lived. Yeah, I want to come there. I want to be with you, Abraham. Not once does he ask there. He wants to be comforted while he still remains where he is. I'll say that again. He has no desire to go to heaven. He wants to be comforted while remaining where he is 
who he is with his value systems on earth completely intact. So here's the next thing to notice. What we are now gradually becoming by choice is what we will con be confirmed in for all eternity. Heaven and hell are trajectories on which we are already well launched. What we are in the process of becoming by choice, we will be confirmed for in all eternity. That's why this whole business of second chances is relevant. My, my mother, who's not a believer, she's 90 years old, one of her big objections is she said, look, as, as parents, we would give our children one, two, three, four, five, twenty, thirty chances. How can you believe in a God who uh, will not give you a second chance? The, the, the point of stories like this that Jesus is trying to get across is that no matter how many chances are given, they will not change their minds. If you've never read this book, there's a little brief book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Only 80 pages long. Uh, it's just written as a powerfully imaginative story, easy to read. You don't need to have a degree in, in philosophy or psychology or theology to understand it. But it's one of the most powerful portrayals of the fact that no matter how many chances people are given the other side of the grave, they will not want to change who they are. They want to be comforted where they are. Well, let's see how Abraham responds to that. He said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. What he's saying is, there's synagogues there. The Sabbath worship that your five brothers have access to. The prophets are read and preached. And the prophets will tell you abundantly about how you should be treating people like Lazarus. You have plenty of opportunity to learn how to live. What makes you think that if the scriptures have not persuaded them to change the way they live, that they're going to change when you, where you are, aren't changing? Well, to which the man responds, he says, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, uh, just a, a, a messenger on earth, e even a, a synagogue leader, a, a rabbi preaching, maybe that won't be effective. But if someone were to come back from the dead, startling the person, surely he's going to listen to someone like that. That sounds plausible. Look at the conclusion. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let me build some bridges from this final response of Abraham to us. First of all, first thing to keep in mind is that God owes us nothing more than the scriptures. In the scriptures, there's, there's abundant provision for us to understand how we should be living in this world, how we should be preparing for the world to come. And, and our scriptures, the scriptures that we have today are far more than the scriptures that they had. Today, in addition to all the scriptures that these five brothers of Lazarus would have had, of the rich man would have had, we have all of the gospels. We have the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the, his, the early church. All of that is something that is capable of historical verification. And we have 2,000 years of church history. That's, that's the first thing that we need to remember. We have multiple translations of the Bible. We have the scriptures available for us on the internet. We have commentaries. We have 
churches into which we can go to and hear the word of God explained. You can tune into a dozens of radio stations and television explaining the scriptures from so many different... You've got websites that help you dig deeper in. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. God owes us nothing more than what he's already provided for us. But the second, even more important thing, it tells us about the spirit in which investigations need to be made. Let me, let me say a few words to some of you here. There may even be just one or two of you who say, you know, I'm not a follower of Jesus yet. And actually the reason I'm not is I have a lot of intellectual questions. And that's, that's okay. My brother-in-law's organization uh, exists because he said for some people the door to the heart is through the mind. Another man, I can't forget, remember who it was, said, the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind cannot approve. So it is important. It is important to get intellectual questions addressed. But the spirit in which you ask them is absolutely crucial. And so here's the question. Here's the next question. Is your seeking for evidence intellectual integrity or intellectual arrogance? You know what's the difference between the two? I can illustrate it best this way. Suppose I were to talk to you after the service and was able to answer to your satisfaction every single intellectual question that you had. Would you then bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and follow him? If your answer is yes, then your quest is marked by intellectual integrity. If your answer is no, then it is more intellectual arrogance than integrity. And so the spirit in which you investigate is important. Abraham's words suggest for us what the scripture says to us that it is not often because of lack of evidence that we do not become followers of Christ. Rather because we do not want to change the way in which we live, we suppress the truth. And the Greek word that is translated as suppress in that text is something that requires active energy to push down. Or in summer now, and you're in the swimming pool once in a while, sometimes, remember, you play games, you try to push that, uh, those foam boards down. You know what happens to them? They keep popping up, right? Or when you try to sit on a balloon, it just, oh, no, the big ball, it just slips out from underneath. It takes active effort and energy to hold something down. He said that's the kind of dynamic that is going on in people's lives, holding down and suppressing the truth rather than face it in reality. And so it's crucial, very important. So here's my next question. For some of you who are still on that journey. In what ways are you suppressing clear evidence for the truth of Jesus and the scriptures and hiding your desire to continue your present lifestyle and values by asking for more evidence? Can I ask that again? In what way are you suppressing clear evidence for the truth of Jesus and the scriptures and hiding your desire to continue your present lifestyle and values by asking for more evidence? Is it intellectual integrity or is it intellectual arrogance? By the way, Jesus answered that hypothetical question. If my friend Max had shown up at that bar, most of the people would have said, hey, another round of scotch on the rocks, please. If someone would have returned from the dead, Jesus said, they would not believe. Well, the curtain comes down, the play is over. But there's one question that it still leaves us asking. How do people become like this? How do people become like this so that they are hardened to the Lazaruses on earth and hardened to the point where repentance is impossible even on the other side of the grave. And for that we need to go back and take a look at what parables are all about. The word parable comes from two Greek words, para and bole. Para means alongside, like, like parallel, and bole which means to throw. So a 
parable is something that is thrown alongside something else. Imagine if you're walking along and all of a sudden something comes rolling next to you. There's nobody who's going to continue walking, right? You're going to stop immediately and say, what is this? What is this doing here? Is it a ball or is it a grenade? Makes a big difference what you're going to do, the answer to that question, right? A parable, something thrown alongside, immediately involves you in the situation. You cannot be neutral to it anymore. And so Jesus told his parables not as standalone stories as they are often treated. But Jesus told his parables, or not in every case, but in most cases, he threw them alongside something else that he was talking about already. So as to get attention. So here's the question. What did Jesus threw, throw this parable along? And that's what tells us there's something a lot more than just about hell, although we picked out a few things about eternal issues and how we should approach uh, evidences. Here's what Jesus told this parable. A few verses before, Luke chapter 16, verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, meaning material food, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It was after he said this that Jesus told this parable. It was almost as if he was saying, you cannot serve God and money. By the way, let me tell you what happens to a man who served money rather than God. Look at what happened to his soul. Self-indulgence use of our resources hardens our heart to need in this world and gets us to the point where repentance becomes permanently impossible. So here's another thing to keep in mind. How we handle our money directly affects our soul. Money matters are intensely spiritual matters. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. One man who wrote the biography, King George V, who wrote a better biography than anybody else, uh, when asked what was the secret, he said, I had access to his bank book. Jesus wanted to drive this home. That's why he said, if you're not faithful in little things, material things, who's going to entrust you the spiritual riches in this world? So here's another question. How could the way you are now handling your wealth help or hinder deepening your grasp of life-changing spiritual realities. Let us sit there for a few moments. How could the way you are now handling your wealth, little or much, help or hinder deepening your grasp of life-changing spiritual realities? Because it is affecting your soul. It is affecting the condition of your heart. You know, why, what did Jesus say you cannot serve God and money? He didn't say that about anything else. He didn't say you cannot serve God and lust. He didn't say you cannot serve God and climbing up the corporate ladder. Money is the only thing that Jesus elevated to the status of a rival God that is powerful enough to compete with him. He wouldn't have needed to say it if money didn't have that power. Money is the only thing that convincingly promises to give us what only God can give us. Money promises to give us security, significance, uh, influence, popularity. There's a lot of things that money promises and superficially offer a certain amount of time or in some ways it actually seems to be able to do that. But at the expense of what is happening in our soul. 
That's why he said, this is a fundamental choice you make. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. So what does serving mean in this case? I mean, you, you don't really serve money. You don't have an altar in your home where you put up pictures of your RRSPs and your bank account and you sing hymns to it every day. Because the word serving also means worship. How do you worship money? What does it mean to worship money? It has to, worship has to do with trust, right? Worship has to do with acknowledging worth. So the person who serves money or trusts money is basically saying, I, I, trust my, I trust money to give what it promises. The person who worships God says, no, I trust God to give me ultimate significance and security and worth. So here's a variation of this question, a question for you, for those of you who are Christ followers. How is your wealth, lots of it or small amount of it, right now being involved in advancing the kingdom of God, locally and globally? How is your money being used to serve God and worship God? Someone once put it this way, how are you using your money in such a way that would make Jesus look great to anybody who found out? If people looked at your checkbook, would they get an idea of what you think of Jesus? They will, by the way. It is what idea they get on how you think of Jesus. Those are some good questions for us to ask. And the point of this whole parable, thrown alongside this statement, is to awaken us to the seriousness of this whole issue. For some, hopefully for many of us, it comes as an encouragement to continue. Because everything that I've heard about what goes on in this church shows that you're incredibly generous people. You have compassion from the Lazaruses of this world. Just keep it up. Keep it up. Your souls are becoming tender and soft towards God. But for some of you who might be struggling, or maybe even disregarding it, maybe this comes as a warning. I don't know. You know where you sit. There's one more crucial application of the last uh, words of Abraham who said, if someone were to return from the dead, they wouldn't believe. See, we don't know what happened to these five brothers. We don't even know whether the five brothers, ex- they exist only in Jesus' story. So we'll ne- we never know. We never know whether they would actually have gone to a synagogue. We never know whether they would have changed the way they treated the Lazaruses that were still around. We don't know that. But actually, Jesus gives us another clue by what he throws this parable alongside as to the likely response of people. Who were the five brothers? In the story, they were only a figment of Jesus' creativity. But there actually were a a, a, um, corresponding group of people. They were called the Pharisees. Because after saying... You cannot serve God and money. Luke records in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. You see, it was, it was really ultimately not so much about Lazarus, the man. It was about the people in Jesus' day. It was about the Pharisees. Just like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son that you may or may not get to in this series was really the Pharisees. So too the five brothers in this story are the key, are the real target. The Pharisees. Because they heard the statement, you cannot love God and money, and they sneered at him because they love money. You see, the elements of Jesus' story were already happening around them. There were people that were seated at a table. (laughs) They were seated at Jesus' table. Jesus was eating and drinking with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the invisible people to the Pharisees. 
So this story that he was talking about Lazarus dying and sitting in Abraham's bosom was already happening before their eyes. The Lazarus of the world was sitting with Jesus, eating together. And as for this other story, if a Lazarus were to return from the dead, they would not believe. Guess what? In shortly after this, there was a Lazarus who was going to be raised. <laughs> Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus. Now you see why the, this parable is the only one that has the name of a person. A, a Lazarus was going to rise. Not resurrection, but resuscitated. And did they believe because of that? If you read the story, you will find that when Lazarus was raised from the dead, you know what the Pharisees and the chief priests, who by the way were the other group, the landed gentry who were also wealthy, who were in cahoots with Rome and got kickbacks from the worship system in the church. Jesus was very harsh to these people. You know how they responded? They said, now that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, there's no telling the number of people who are going to believe in Jesus. So let's kill Lazarus and it's about time to kill Jesus. So the raising of Lazarus from the dead, far from making them believe in Jesus, sealed his death warrant. And shortly after that, of course, Jesus himself was going to rise from the dead. <laughs> and when Jesus himself rose from the dead, what did he do to the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Did they believe? No, no. They said to the guards, listen, we'll pay you some money. Just spread the rumor that somebody came and stole his body. Now do you see the point of the story? Because the story of the five brothers who would not believe even if a Lazarus came back from the dead was about to be enacted twice over. Once in the res resuscitation of a literal Lazarus and in the resurrection of Jesus. In both cases it hardened them in their unbelief. Pharisees ridiculed Jesus. So let me put those five questions back again. Who are the invisible people in your life that God wants you to start noticing? Forget people. How about one? And if nothing comes to mind right now, maybe during this week you want to give it some thought. What is there someone that's become just invisible? Secondly, for those of you who are still on the journey of addressing your intellectual questions relating to the Christian faith, is you're seeking for evidence intellectual marked by intellectual integrity or arrogance? In what way are you suppressing clear evidence for the truth of Jesus in the scriptures and hiding your desire to continue your present lifestyle and values by asking for more evidence? How could the way you are now handling your wealth help or hinder deepening your grasp of life-changing spiritual realities? And for those who are Christ followers, the variation of that question is, in what way is your wealth, much or little, being harnessed to advance God's purposes because of how much you think of Jesus? Some of the questions this story raises. Could be quiet for a moment and just have you think on whichever one of them, perhaps more than one that lands on your heart right now and let the spirit probe your heart a bit more.
as we sing these last two songs, I just would like to encourage you to use the words of the songs to just continue uh, to think along the lines that the Spirit has already prompted you to. Maybe, maybe it's a prayer that you need to enter into wholeheartedly. Maybe there'll be some dimension of God, of nature or character that will be portrayed in those words that you're singing that, will come, that you need to fasten on. Maybe He will continue to deepen some words that He's already been speaking to you this morning. So sing attentively, and if you have to listen and not sing in order to be able to really focus on it, that's okay too. You just respond in a way the Spirit of God is encouraging you. The first song that we sang, I was just struck by that phrase, uh, grace that rescues. So I want to bless you this morning with grace that rescues you from the tyranny of things. May he by his grace give you one specific step to take and as you do, may the release of joy and power in your life encourage you to take the next step. May you experience the great rescues this week. Go in Jesus' name.